I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you, too, if you've, uh, if, you, if you've had a chance recently to recommend the show to a friend. That makes a big difference. That's that's really our only... That's, that's the only kind of advertising or promotion we do. So uh, thank you very much, and I... And welcome to anybody who is new to the show. If you are new to the show, <laughs> this is not a typical episode, though what a typical episode is exactly is sometimes difficult to define. I'm not going to promote the <laughs> secret show because there's too much shit to talk about, but, uh, you know, look it up if you if you, if you you feel so inclined. This is a weird one. <laughs> this was not... This... Very little of this went as planned... I was badly underprepared for our our planned topic, which didn't end up being our topic at all. I uh, also was deal- dealing with my daughters a lot that day, and then they end up interrupting the recording as well. Some we were supposed to talk about line breaks. We were also supposed to talk about Alice Oswald and specifically a lecture she gave. That we we do get to that lecture a little bit. Uh, later on in the conversation. And I, I understand Alice Oswald recently started listening to the show, at least some of it. Uh, Professor Oswald, if you are listening, just know that you are welcome to come on the show anytime you like and tell me what a fucking idiot I am, because I, I'm sure that we say plenty of things. I'm sure we get a lot wrong. So, so it, you know, often what we'll do is we'll kind of come up with a couple of beefier topics and then maybe have a, a, a few little you know whimsical questions or icebreakers and Alice had a a semi-joking or at least it's I thought it was a semi-joking objection in our whatsapp thread to a really fleeting moment in in uh, an episode Cameron and I had recorded and that ends up being mostly what we talk about we mostly talk about a single sentence from Audre Lorde's famous 1979 convention speech, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Conveniently, the sentence we talked about was also the title of this piece. That's all I knew of it. At any rate, I, I have since then, I did read this speech. It's very short. It's three-page speech. I'll include a link in the show notes. Uh, and it's you know, as, as Alice suggested, there there is more to get from it than that one line. Um, that line is is the the, the one that's that's quoted uh, ad nauseum today. Um, we do there is some poetry in this episode. We do get into the Alice Oswald lecture some, and I think we may touch briefly on line breaks. Still, some things I'd like to talk about there, but but this seemed like a conversation worth having at the time, and. I hope you will agree that it's one I thought worth sharing. Uh, as always, let me know what. Uh, feel free, always you, you, you know, you listener, and Alice Oswald. Feel free to tell me when I am an idiot. I'm always interested uh, in learning more. So here's here's just a part of the speech that I thought stood out. This is, um, this is a speech she gave at a at the tail end of a feminist conference in 1979. Poor women and women of color know there is a difference between the daily manifestations of marital slavery and prostitution because it is our daughters who line 42nd Street. 
If white American feminist theory need not deal with the differences between us and the resulting difference in our oppressions, then how do you deal with the fact that the women who clean your houses and tend your children while you attend conferences on feminist theory are, for the most part, poor women and women of color? What is the theory behind racist feminism? In a world of possibility for us all, our personal visions help lay the groundwork for political action. The failure of academic feminists to recognize difference as a crucial strength is a failure to reach beyond the first patriarchal lesson. In our world, divide and conquer must become define and empower. So as I said, I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I, I, I thought it, it, it was a it was an articulation of a thought worth hearing and might help provide a little bit of additional context for the 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 one line that we end up spending a long time talking about. Uh, as I said, not a typical episode. There is some poetry in it, but it's a weird one. And because it was one in which I feel like we got to Alice Alice gave us something that I think has not always been available in the past and which, as I said, I hope was not too great. It was not, it was not too taxing for her. Uh, she is, as you all know, the very, very best. So here's, uh, here's a conversation with Alice and Cameron. Oh, I also, um, because I was scrambling in and out of the room to deal with my daughters, there is a little conversation at the beginning that was that it was ju it's just Alice and Cameron speaking. I didn't know about any of that when we had our conversation, but I, I thought it would be worth leaving in. They, they talk a little bit about privilege in institutional and educational contexts, and uh, and so I so I thought I would I would leave that in before we get to uh, <laughs> before we get derailed uh, properly. Are you happy at Oxford? Do you like it there? Yeah, I yeah I I I I, I want to be here more than I want to be anywhere other place. And that's pretty I good. I can't really think of other you know I can't think of alternatives that I haven't done that sound well no I can think of incredible alternatives I haven't done that sound better than Oxford, but I can't think of any likely alternatives that mm -hmm. are better than here. It's, it's what would weird... be your what would be your like dream alternative? Oh, I don't know. I mean, like surreal shit like i don't know like the life like like the early life of rembo was like pre pretty great and until like he dies in africa but you know like apart from that apart from like being like somewhere in like a fanta fantasized you know fantasized not quite real version of like artistic bohemia oxford's pretty okay like mm -hmm. i'd rather be here than sort of grinding into sort of the um into work which which is, which is coming given like a year or so but you know it, it it's yeah it's good it's good here it, it's a it's a it's a really weird place and incredibly strange levels of sort of, of wealth disparity between the students yeah. they take in i'm in one of the better colleges for that it's weird mainly mainly sort of people who went to non-private schools and, and have got sort of lower middle class i think is probably the average in, in my college but yeah, there's still some colleges that are sort of insanely fucking like Eton type shit. Um, mm. Everyone's yeah, everyone's posh and shit. Like, yeah, it 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 varies. But this part of Oxford Oxford I'm in is pr pretty nice. So yeah, I'm happy here. Yeah, more or less.
How do you relate to people like that who have had just such privileged lives? I don't I don't know if I could unless we had a shared interest. Mm. I don't I don't know if I could relate to people or that maybe I guess cuz privilege is such a such a sort of weird complicated slightly undefinable thing. I guess I might be able to relate to people who've had like privileged lives but also sort of exper uh, experienced I guess minoritization in some form maybe better than I could just relate to like incredibly privileged straight white males maybe I don't yeah. know I, it's 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 a big curve I mean yeah what do you how how many you must have encountered pretty privileged people at some point right only really when we were living in New York and sort of like it's not Silicon Valley but like Silicon Valley bros Right, um, yeah, yeah. that kind that kind of privilege like people who had been to Stanford and or been to Yale and had just had these amazing lives where everything was sort of handed to them I also do part of like what I do freelance is I write a newsletter for a very very rich boys school here in Melbourne <laughs> and uh, I get a, right. a real window into like the life of privilege through that yeah um, which helps you like it has helped me to understand the world a bit better mm. so I'm like oh, oh fascinating. if everything's handed to you right at the very start you really can't fail unless you want to yeah 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 very true I mean yeah, yeah. and but... I think last time you and I talked one-on-one -on -one, you were sort of saying you were talking about the difficulty in finding a poetry community has that changed much in the last sort of six months not not materially. I am in communication with more poets than I ever have been, which is nice. In fact, actually, I mean, I I I need to get back to it. Alice Oswald, who we who we may be we may be talking about, is actually meeting up with me in, in private on the first or second of February. So it's, this isn't a workshop. This is just a one to one meeting. So that'd be nice. But yeah, That's I don't amazing. have any. That'd be fun. But I don't have any sort of um. Do you have any physical community of people per se? I have online communities, but I've always had sort of a rated thing that those places, although I as I, I always say this, I am not I am not so I'm on the outskirts of those communities and sort of being liked and what I seem to find aesthetically pleasurable compared to them. But yeah, I think I'm I'm happy with the amount of people I email and I yeah, I I, I like that. I, I it's it's interesting because, you know, half the things you hear about poetry communities from like your podcast and a bit with Matthew it is negative. And I don't I don't particularly like sort of the poetry world in its sort of weird, weirdly sort of neoliberal sort of job climbing and vague pretentious towards all, I don't know, weird Marxism and like it's sort of fakeness. But I do love talking to individual poets about about, you know, poetry and language. So. I know it's a balancing act. Maybe, maybe I'm in a good place of being sort of maybe detached digital communication, but I don't know. It's hard to measure, I guess. Yeah, mm. detachment seems like a good strategy. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful. I've, you know, I can talk to people. I can. So. Oh, here comes Matthew. Now. When Cameron and I last spoke, we talked about about the Audrey Lord line: "The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house." I think that's it. And we both thought that was a self-evidently silly statement, both on a literal and a metaphorical level. And you, and I know, I mean, I've read 
none of Audrey Lord, I don't think. And Cameron's read a little, but you said yeah. we we had something wrong about the Red Butter. Yeah, no, I mean you're you're wrong on on every level. Like there was <laughs> okay. there was a lot in that episode that I didn't agree with, but I'm not going to fight other people's battles. But yeah, that was the moment listening to it where I was like, you just invoked the phrase and then blew past it, being like, no, it's, obviously that's stupid. And I was just sitting there being like, what? <laughs> this is a foundational yeah. idea of of feminism that you're just like chucking aside. What yeah. do you mean? Like, please explain. Do you want to take literal or figurative, Cameron, or how should we split this up? Um, uh, I'll take I'll take literal. All right, yeah, go you, for you, literal. You can do the heavy lifting of figurative. Yeah, great. Well, Thanks. literally, yeah, literal is kind of easy, isn't it? Like the mas it, as long as the master's tools aren't like a tiny little, I don't know, a tiny little spade. The tool what tools <laughs> used to subjugate people a child? will. <laughs> I, I, well, like, I'm just trying to like worm my way out of any like loopholes. But like tools used to subjugate people will work equally well on destroying the subjugator. Literally. Well, I thought we were talking about a literal house first, like a literal house. Well, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. sure, fine. I moved into metaphor. Yeah, 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 yeah. The master, yeah, like most tools will dismantle a fucking house. Like the master's tools will dismantle the master's house. It it doesn't work on a literal scale. Yeah, yeah. Demoli like demolition involves a lot of hammers, as does construction. Yeah, so yeah. That, yeah. And that level, mm. I think it's a, it's not a great metaphor to. It doesn't. If the goal is to make an otherwise uh, unfamiliar abstract concept accessible, it's a bizarre way to go about that because the the, the image it presents is a nonsensical one. Um, and then, well, it, and then, it sounds yeah, lovely, doesn't it? It sound it sounds nice. But I don't think it yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it's like it. verbally symmetrical, but it's yeah. logically yeah. and literally nonsensical. Uh, but if we're just talking about dismantling, then like fucking why not? Why wouldn't the master's tools work? Whatever you want to call them, like literal, metaphorical. Like, of course they, they would work. Like if the tools are literal tools for building a house, then like those are the same tools you use to tear it down. Other than like you bring in a, and even if you're having to bring in a wrecking ball, like you may not have used a wrecking ball to build the house, but it's still the master's tools. And then if like what like like violence and propaganda is what is what builds up the master's house and the sense of patriarchy, I guess, and like like the noble lie of Plato and these sort of things that we tell, like, hey Ellie, baby, we I thought I'd just talk to you in a bit. Like the, these things definitely, like yeah, the, how how do you think you dismantle that? Like yeah, I, I think so. I'm distracted by my 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 daughter's. The daughter's tools are dismantling the master's attention right now. Sorry, you tell, but tell us what we're. Give us the thing that didn't that didn't land for us with the yeah. first time we heard it, I guess, and help us understand. Let me let me introduce it a bit better too. So, the context is that she's been invited to speak at a conference in New York. This is in the mid '80s, and she is really angry because she feels that well, she has been put on the program right at the very end as a little kind of add-on um, to this uniformly white feminist conference as the only representative of black people and lesbians. So she's she's come in to say, um, those of us who stand at the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, 
know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. So like that was life-changing for me when I read it. it. It opened up a new way of seeing things that I had never considered before, because if you, if you do use master's tools to try to dismantle something like patriarchy, then you end up with girl boss feminism, essentially. You end up just recapitulating and reinforcing stuff. And she does say, you know, you can temporarily beat him at his own game. So yes, you can dismantle, take apart the house, but that doesn't mean that the house isn't going to get rebuilt. And also you've just learned how to use the tools of your oppressor better. You haven't done anything imaginative. You haven't thought outside of the parameters that you've been given that are oppressing you. So yeah. you haven't gotten anywhere. Yeah. I feel like a poor that's... oppressor, it's the poor oppressor who blames those tools, right? Like it's the tool, the tools are not the, the evil thing, right? I mean, like that, isn't that true in almost all of circumstances? Like with the exception of like, I don't know, the atom bomb, like chemical warfare, like there are very few tools that are intrinsically good or bad. It's almost always a matter of how you use them, I would think. I think about a tool like violence, for example, like it rarely helps in a situation where someone is is being violent to just get more violent or if someone's screaming at you if you just scream louder you're probably not going to dismantle you're not going to um diffuse that situation very well yeah. that that's how i think of it it's just like you have to be more creative than your oppressor it does seem like there's a very there's a very handy little trick she performs in saying survival is not an act for all of us survival is not an academic procedure academic what is it she's saying an academic skill yeah an academic, great so for all of us survival is not an academic skill and then she she moves from there pretty quickly to the master's tools will never, never dismantle the master's house but there's a real those are actually two very different claims like one is one is the claim that i totally sympathize with which is you fucking pinheads are talking about revolution but all you're doing is like writing papers in scholarly journals like that's not actually helping anybody's like that's not improving anyone's life that's not making any real change you're not that's not even picking up a machine a machine gun right but then but then that's actually a separate claim from the, the it's the tools itself that made the system evil and using the same tools will never will never wreak i mean I, I i don't know i just find that to be again like a very stirring sentiment and a very a, a, like a very effective piece of rhetoric, but I just don't think it conveys any kind of penetrating truth. Like the tools of the, okay. the tools of like the subaltern, like take the tools of the underclass, whatever, however you want to define like the people who are not in charge, whatever those tools are, those can also be used for good or evil, right? Can't they? I mean, is it the tools themselves that, that possess the, the charge of goodness or badness? Let, let me read you another paragraph please, to see please. if it helps at all. Yeah. This is towards the end. Women of today are still being called upon to stretch across the gap of male ignorance and to educated men as our existence, as to our existence and our needs. This is an old and primary tool of all oppressors to keep the oppressed occupied with the master's concerns. 
Now we hear that it is now we hear that it is the task of women of color to educate white women in the face of tremendous resistance as to our existence, our differences, our relative roles in our joint survival. This is a diversion of energies and a tragic repetition of racist patriarchal thought. So again, it's this thing of like, you are wasting time and energy and you're describing, even in this conversation right now, I'm talking to two of you who are far more headed than I am and I'm trying to use everything I can. No, sorry, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, those... losing, I'm losing some of your sound. I just want to hear everything you're saying. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I wonder how. Just your thought after after the quotation, like like the the application of this principle. Yeah, uh, j just e even now, I'm kind of doing the same thing that she's telling us not to do, which is, which is you you guys are both way more educated than I am, and I'm still like sitting here trying to like use whatever um, like facts and quotes and things that I can draw on to convince yeah. you. But what Audrey Lord would say would be like, you're, you're wasting your time. You, you shouldn't be doing this. This is like, this is a diversion of your energies. You need to get more creative. Was she talking to you or us, do you think? Or none of us? I, I think she was talking to me. Yeah. yeah. I think she's talking to other feminists. Yeah. Do you... Well, I, and I also I dispute the claim that we're both more educated than you. I mean, I, it's just, as you said, like this is a woman, you know her work at least well enough to like have thoughts and feelings about it. And I know it not at all, except for this one claim that I thought was silly. What do you think? Do you think that's a, it's a waste of your time? What should you, what should you be doing instead? I, I know from, from my own life that, um, you can spend a lot of time having these conversations and it doesn't tend to go very far. But I guess I, I wanted to bring it up with you guys because it was like, it was a moment of like, oh, wait a minute. Why don't they agree with that? Like, what's going on here? I, I needed to understand like what it was specifically that you didn't agree with in that. But it sounds like you just don't really like the choice of word, which I suppose we can agree to disagree on. Can I come in here because I feel like I'm caught between you both of you yeah. i i totally agree with i totally agree with everything she says in um in terms of activism activism I, I agree with the educating thing i agree um i don't agree that you're less educated than us Alice, but i agree on what she says about what lord says about education and i i do wonder if what she sees says is tools i might just say is strategies because it seems yeah, like strategies works yeah, and also strategies is more abstract than tools. But I guess, I think it's, we're not even working, I think we're working at slight cross purposes. Is when I think about it, when I was, when I sort of dismissed the comment, I was talking about its use by some people in poetry to say that this type of artistic, because it was used by like wider presses in the past, should be ignored so i guess i was coming to it from a purely aesthetic viewpoint where you seem to be coming from it from a more sort of uh a more in life i don't want to say political because i think political diminishes it from sort of a, a whole life um a whole life strategy to just one sphere but sort of a, a cultural idea to live by why well, i guess i'm more i was then thinking and invested in it 
purely as sort of an artistic, uh, an artistic critique in poetic. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that totally makes sense. <laughs> Seems like part of what yeah, you're maybe you're, I didn't quite. No, part part of what you're you're expressing, though, Alice, is that listening to this or reading this or encountering this uh, speech, or at least the you know, this passage from it had an effect on you that sounds, I mean, it really what it tracks with, it sounds very similar to the effect of a good or a moving poem that you hear or you read at the right age that like opens something up. It reveals a perspective to you or a way of feeling or it, it, it like chimes with something that you recognize and it rings true and whether or not the, whether or not the individual clauses within it can withstand sort of a dry scientific scrutiny is, is a little bit beside the point but like something about this utterance stirred you and got at an experience that you understood or maybe came to understand even better and in a way we're doing the wrong thing when we hear it as a as a kind of a logical or practical claim yeah so, i guess i just wanted to restore it a little bit yeah, that is, that's yeah, definitely yeah. fair. I, I thought it would be worth just trying to bring, like, yeah, yeah reinstate it. Um, because it was a moment for me encountering this idea where I was like, I, now I can see that it isn't just a matter of, like, taking the men out of the powerful positions and slotting in women because the women will often just end up doing the same kind of oppressive work because the power structure hasn't changed at all. And that's what she's, that's what she's complaining about in terms of this conference, right? It's like, it might as well just be like an all white male conference for like all, um, uh, all the work you've done. Yeah. It's just like too, too surface level. You need to go deeper. You need to get more imaginative and need to stop using the same strategies. That, that's a really good word, Cameron. Yeah. So now you've met uh, really um, head up feminist Alice, and good. I'm good. sure that you regret asking. No, me. not at all. No, oh, I don't at all. I, no, 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 I'm very, very glad to. No, like this no, is. No, I. Yeah. I, I, this seems to me this um, the effect this has on Alice reminded me of when uh, my friend sent uh, me a, a few weeks ago a quote by. Um, I think a, a black woman on TikTok who said just something along the lines of something very simple along the lines of like, I cannot be bothered accommodating white people anymore. Or maybe I'm like, I'm so bad of, of accommodating white people anymore. And like that primarily, I, I felt very, I felt sort of, I had an epiphany with that because like, I, I am so fucking tired of accommodating, like, patronizing sighted people like encounter mm. every fucking day i'm tired of that also my mum, i just had like a recent conversation with my uh my mom about the racism she had like encountered so i was kind of, i was i i don't i don't like i don't feel the quote literally on a on a personal level but i felt it sort of um familiar uh through family and and i felt it um uh, um i felt it referentially as connected to sort of my own experiences or as a very different minority but I mean, that seems to me to that seems to me, and also I don't want to guess at your experience, but I guess I feel like I can empathize with your um, love of the Lord quote because I feel like that is what I come from from the other quote. Also, Matthew, the way yep. you define that 
Alice's response to that Lord quote as, as like a response to a good poem yeah. is maybe one of the big differences between the three of us because I would not describe to a poem. You, I don't you would know. not I, describe. I, 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 missed, I missed a little clip of what you said. Well, like, sorry, I I would not. I just, I would not, if I had that experience, I'd not think, oh, this is like reading a great poem. I, I think, I just think, oh, this is like being, having a revelation of something to me. But I don't, I don't know. I just, I think that is one of the big differences, maybe where the two of you encounter poems differently, that the emotional aspect of a poem is more bound up in the language for me, while it seems that you guys yeah. seem to experience a poem as sort of like a, an emotionally revelatory act. Yeah, it's both. I mean, it's it's both. I mean, that's but again, that's partly that's that question of translation. I mean, and also, I also I just did a good long episode. I'm, I'm going to try to release the first part of it this week about Horace, and all of that's in translation. But I think like there's a there's a good portion of lyric poetry that is translatable. There's much of it that is not, and even in a good translation, it has to it has to have the right words to transmit it. But uh, yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. Like, I don't, I don't have that response to this Lord passage, but I, but I've had it to other things that struck other people. It's like, you know, like, uh, old joy, which at some point we'll talk about Joanna saw that and was just, just thought like, what is this fucking like two grubby guys going on a hike with a dog? What the fuck is this? Um, and like, they seem so <laughs> self-involved. It's like, yeah, they definitely are self-involved. Like definitely like this is sort of a pointless movie with no plot about nothing that happens and two guys that don't matter. And like only the dog is universally, you know, lovable, but it just totally tore my heart out and still does. So, I, I mean, I think that's what you were describing sounded to me like an aesthetic, an emotional aesthetic response, which I totally can relate to personally, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's what it was. And yeah, just exactly like you described, Cameron, it's sort of that moment of like, I'm, I'm going to put all this, this concern, this this need to kind of um, educate, make other people comfortable, think about where I'm going to put this, put that all down. I mean, yeah, I, I spent so many years trying to change people around me for like absolutely no gain and it really just exhausted me, um, alienated them. I don't think the answer necessarily is for everybody to retreat to their respective corners and never talk about any of this stuff. Um, but I do think that there is a really important, like this, this quote of Lord's is like finding a new, it's being translated again into that kind of sentiment of like, I can't be bothered dealing with white people. I don't want to deal with patronizing people. It's just like, yeah, S save your energy, pick your battles if you want to fight at all. Meanwhile, I can just do whatever I like, I guess. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, here's, here, I, I, and I try, I try not to think of, like, I don't know, I try not to think of behavior in terms of being, is this feminist, is this progressive? But, but like a, a thought I have had about some of this sort of thing is that I definitely know, like, I'm not so autistic that I like can't pick up on the script for how a good enlightened arts affiliated like millennial white man is supposed to behave like i 100 percent know that the correct thing to do is to nod deferentially to an audrey lord quote and to invite you know accounts of a lived experience and 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 accept them 
totally at face value and not try to engage in a critical way with, you know, art or, or, you know, essays that are, that have a, that sort of have God on their side from a progressive point of view. Like I know that, but I also, part of me, which has done that for a long time, also feels like, God, that's so fucking condescending. And like, who's, who's always been very bad. That. I've always been very bad at normal social interactions and like above average at like arguing classroom interactions like that, like that's sort of, that's where I was sort of like able to a little bit hold my own. And part of what I felt like I felt it as a student, I felt as a teacher, I feel it as a father is like, I, I want to give like full credit to people who are participating in this arena, like of whatever background of whatever origin of whatever, like previous marginalized history. Like I want to give full credit and say like, welcome in, like, let's, let's fucking go. Let's do this. Like, let's play the game that we're here to play. Not because I want to be mean and yell at people, but because I don't want to pull my intellectual punches with people because they've historically been oppressed. Because I think that's not only because I think like, it's right. not very intellectually honest, but also because I think like, it's sort of shitty and racist and sexist to do that is kind of my feeling. Yeah. Also like, that is but, a, but like that is... which isn't to say I'm not also an asshole and I don't also get things wrong, but like, I'm not, I play the oblivious oaf somewhat and i am somewhat oblivious but i but some of this is not totally unconsidered if that makes sense you, tell me if it doesn't of, please a kind of there's no, no but I, I totally agree i think there's a kind of like a, a fetishistic condescension that white people do like these types of texts that i really hate and i think it's like its own it's its own form of right it's its own racism it's it's disgust, it disgusts me that like you know white people just you know, some white people just um just sort of nod along to it and then just walk away and you know just like um don't don't engage it. A lack of engagement is like a condescension a condescension in itself because you you don't feel like you need to engage with it or you're in some way a lack of engagement with a text a lack of wrestling with a text is placing yourself above that text and, and that and that is racism when white like when white people do that. That that's that's horrible. People do not do that. However, well intentioned it is, it it is like it is a form of destructiveness. So I mean, I, this is like this is a quote I've heard many times before. Literally, it's the only thing I've heard from her. I don't know what it says that like as with maybe like just as conservatives love to quote the one line from the "I Have a Dream" speech. Like that maybe this is like the one line that like my my like women's studies feminist bros and you know back home would, would love the quote of Audre Lorde so like I've heard it many times and, and almost all of those times I've just said okay and I would like I don't know <laughs> like again I think you're I think you're probably hitting on something it's in like noting that like she's not really talking to me she's not really concerned with anything I'm thinking you're doing so it doesn't doesn't necessarily like it, it doesn't necessarily matter what I what I say in response to it but I do I have somewhat consciously thought like why why not go ahead and try to see what's going on here and it may be that the answer is well why not is that it just gets in other people's way yeah i think you just have to consider your context right like this is a conversation that we have all volunteered to have i've come here with fucking notes mm -hmm. so like i'm ready to talk to you mm -hmm. um but yeah you you would obviously know like 
bowl up to someone at a cocktail party and be like, so I heard this thing about Audre Lorde and I don't agree with it and um, oh, you've no. got to educate me as to why. Like, obviously, you would never do something like that. I can't so, remember the last time I yeah. started a conversation at a cocktail party. <laughs> yeah. I almost only, I, like I really... I'm like only defensive, only defensive conversations. It's like, it's like, yeah, yeah. Taekwondo, it's like my daughter's learning Taekwondo. Like you never learn, you never use this as a source of violence. Like you never go out and pick a fight with it. So, you know. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's telling that you use the phrase, um, I don't want to pull my punches. Mm -hmm. Because in that yeah. is kind of this inbuilt knowledge that like you, you do have like, um, a level of like intellectual power and also like thinking and like a canon behind you that that supports your way of thinking like you know so so you i don't quite know what i'm trying it, to say it is here, combative. Just, i don't think i don't think it's necessarily yeah. canonical but i do think it, i mean my, my feeling on that though is that like for a long time women and minorities of different kinds were were not allowed into the room where self-important white men were doing this shit. And, and that's, and that sucks. And there, and there are many different ways to correct that. And part of that has been corrected. And at this point, you know, in terms of just in terms of sex, like women are way, way outperforming men, like to an almost like actually like alarming degree in, in America, at least like in mm -hmm. academic settings in America, women are so outperforming men that like men are, there's some like things are not going to look good in a generation or two, but, um, uh, not because women are doing well, because men are doing poorly. But I think like part of my thought is like, this is what we've been doing in this room that you weren't allowed in. We've been punching, like we've been having at it. And so that's when I say I don't want to pull my punches, I don't mean like you're coming in and you're the other. And so I'm going to punch you with all of the authority I have. It's more like we've been scrapping. That's what this is. Come scrap with us. And I, I think what Audrey Lord would say is like, just don't go in that room. Let's make a different room. She would say that to you. Yeah. She would say that to me. No, I, I no. She would say that to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think she would talk to you. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and to be to be honest, like I wouldn't be in the room. She would be in it. She was in that room that yeah. I'm not in. So yeah, I'm not that worried about. That's right. That. Yeah. Um, all right. Are there things? If I'm going to read some Audrey Lord, if I'm going to add it. To, I mean, realistically, I'm going to add it to my very long list. But like, but like a genuine list. What's a thing I should add? And I, I hesitate well, to ask Cameron because whatever I ask Cameron, tools. it's going to be like extremely long. It's going to be insanely long if I ask Cameron. Yeah, this so, is this is three pages long. It's three oh, just pages. Little, just this little speech would so. be a good place to start. Yeah, okay. just read that. Yeah. All right. Read this, this this seems fascinating to me because we've spent the entire time talking about Audrey Lord, the social cultural essayist. I, when I thought we were going to talk about Lord, I went back to the Poetry Foundation and read some of her poems because I thought we were going to talk about her poetic quality. I thought she was mostly a poet. Yeah, but we've spent the entire time with essays. Yeah, oh yeah, but I, I also wasn't sure, I couldn't read the tone of those texts. So I wasn't sure like how much we were going to do. I mean, I didn't have time anyway because I ended up being stuck in the car the whole time, but but I wasn't sure if it was a, I wouldn't, I actually didn't understand the tech, the tone of like half of those texts now that I realize it. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm um, sorry about that. Well, what, what, what do you, you have some insights about Audre Lorde the poet, Cameron? No, not really. As I said before, I think she's a, a decent enough poet, but I don't think she's a particularly sort of, I, I don't find her poetry particularly stunning or moving. Or, or world 
rearranging. It is maybe condescending, but I think I think it's also my my utter opinion, and therefore I like it's my my uncut opinion. So I think mm -hmm. I should I'd rather say my uncut opinion and condescend to her with some sort of nice piece of bullshit. I think that her worth provides in her essayistic functions more than her poems. But maybe you and Alice can prove me wrong about that. Uh, no, I I haven't read enough of her poetry to talk about it, so <laughs> you're off the hook. Okay. Off the hook. What? But that's fa yeah. that's fascinating. People, I, we talk about you know we so much conversations about these thinkers, Audrey Lord, and I think to a slightly lesser degree, Adrian Rich. I mean, there's more conversation about Adrian Rich's poetry. A lot of this comes down to sort of their conceptual work, and not that, and not much conversation comes down to their poetic work, even though they're called poets. And I wonder. Yeah. Why is this? I mean, I thought that was the most interesting part of that Angie Malenko essay. That, like, mm. we talked a little bit about Alice, and like, I had plenty to object to in that essay, but like, that was the part that, from an artistic perspective, I was most curious about. Is like, because I read, I can't remember where I was. I read something about, I think it was List, the composer, who, not because he was a, feminist activist but because he was like extremely talented but ended up sort of like his talent went to like a lot of transposition problems like he ended up he ended up like, like composing very little original work and almost all of it was like significant demanding work but it wasn't it didn't result in a in a lasting corpus so much as it it like made use of his brilliant mind in these slightly different directions. And it seems like that's, that is a sort of thing that can happen with certain poets. Yeah, had... it just depends where you, where your legacy lands, right? Like it could easily be that Lord or Rich were better public intellectuals than they were poets. People would agree or disagree with that. Like that's, that's okay. If I'm going to be entirely paranoid, I'd say that I do think this happens slightly more with black writers. And I do wonder if it's, again, sort of the white condescension that we'd rather take their, their ideas into account than sort of face up to their poetry. I don't yeah, know. I mean, could be. I was really happy a, a while back because I read it. I really like Lucille Clifton. I read a, a, an article by Lucille Clifton that talked, talked uh, sort of close read one of her poems. And I was really happy to see. Um, her genius for language and techne really put under the microscope. But it seems to me for a, a lot, a lot of black writers, uh, a lot of black writers are, are treated in a sort of conceptual way, and sort of their technical skill as poets is really sort of thrown to a side, especially by white reviewers. Oh yeah, I mean most of the white reviews of black poets end up being just arts and sunshine i mean just like this is this is so great and so brave and so brilliant and so important i mean it's like the janelle monet character in glass onion it's just it's just all 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 like unarticulated pluses yeah and that's racism like that, that's benign racism. racism sucks to read it's useless as criticism it's it's publicity is all it is and it's it's publicity and it's like um it's like intellectual money laundering. Like it's a way to say like, see, I'm good now. Look what I published about Tanahasi Coates or whoever, although he mostly is an essayist. I, it's funny, I, I, I don't know if I was gonna say I, it, 
So here's a question I had. Listening to the Alice Oswald lecture, you, you sent us this Alice Oswald lecture. She's a, I've read poems of hers that I was really impressed by. Listening to her, it's very clear. There's like a really fascinating mind at work there. I was reminded a little bit of like some Mary, like that Mary Gateskill essay, as well as like some Joyce Carol Oates stuff where like my thought kept being, is this someone whose talent significantly outstrips her intelligence? And I don't mean that in any way as a dismissive <laughs> description, but no, I mean, because I would say like the, the, the converse, which is your intelligence significantly outstrips your talent is like, is in a way like a, that's a terrible curse. Like I see that with Dana Joya. I see that with William Logan. I think I see that with James Longenbach, though I haven't read enough of him. Like no poet would choose that imbalance, right? Any poet I know would choose talent over intelligence. And I kind of got that impression with Alice Oswald. I'm like, she's talking about the stuff that just sounded batty, but it's like, she's clearly, she's not a fool. I mean, she's clearly, clearly intelligent, but also the richness of her mind doesn't seem to be so much a, it's not horsepower so much as it's something else to me to be the case. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, pretty, I wonder about like- pretty baffling in parts. Yeah, I, I wonder if there's like a, if there are, like Achilles had that forked destiny where he could, like before he killed Hector and his destiny was sealed, he could either have lived a long and prosperous and happy life as king of Thea, or he could go to battle, die young and live forever in glory. Right. Like those were kind of the two options. And I wonder if you're a poet who has sort of equal parts talent and intelligence, if you're faced with a similar kind of choice. And I wonder with some poets, I was going to say, Cameron, like part of it might be white condescension. Part of it might also be the demands of the moment, right? Like the social context of the moment might, might call more for what, like James Baldwin, I think is somebody who made some significant art but probably did more essayistic work and probably was more pushed by the demands of the moment to do the latter. And in a slightly different context, might've just been sort of more of a pure, beautiful poet kind of writer, as if that makes sense. Like, I wonder how much of that, like if there's certain balances where you have a little bit of a choice depending on how things split. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Although I, I, I bulk a little bit what you said about James Baldwin, because I think, um, Oh no! Yeah, did James James Baldwin? Who did Giovanni's room? Is that yeah? Oh. That is James Baldwin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Giovanni Giovanni's room is a great, great novel. Very good. I think it's a great novel that so, like, definitely think... could have used a, another another strong line edit. But yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I I'm in the middle of um, a discussion with Ryan at the moment about different trends in poet, uh, different poetic expressions that mainly runs along with the idea of the uh, mimetic tradition versus the expressive expressive tradition and the mimetic tradition is sort of um uh when one sort of um produces effects in poems that imitate the subject so yeah, yeah, yeah. um i let think me, there's let me hold you there because i think we may have a little minute later but i know alice is gonna have to go soon enough i wanted to let i wanted to hear from you a little bit before you have to go about you talked a little on the group chat about your experience with line breaks um and how that's changed and i think like a somewhat significant way over the last couple of years is that something you can talk some about or you or you have something else you're more on your mind uh, or are you 
Oh, me, not Cameron. Yeah, yeah, you. No, I was saying like yeah, I want you, you have, like because yeah, yeah. we're gonna you're an endangered resource. Like we're gonna lose you in a little bit. I want, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it it has it has changed pretty significantly, I think. But just just in my own writing, and I don't know how interesting that is, but um, I've changed my view on it, which was previously it was the line break decisions were decisions that I made mostly on instinct. And more recently, I started to think about it in terms of the effect that they have. So there being a, and this, I mean, I'm sure people are rolling their eyes because it's like so obvious and I should have known this already, but it's like they're, they're a crucial tool that you have to use very carefully, very intentionally. Um, they do uh, re a lot of heavy lifting and uh, I just wasn't appreciating that before and, and I'm glad I finally got it. What has been the relationship between that change and your attitude toward them or your treatment of them and your experience with meter? Because I know that's had, had some correlation. Yeah, so that would also be, I think, just just learning a little bit more about that has helped me to see just what what a poem has to do at the line level. But obviously when you're working with meter, you have these particular constraints. And then if you're not, you have slightly more room to move. But so I think it, it focused it quite a bit more for me. But I used to just think that there, that there was, oh, there, there goes Cameron. He's bored out of his mind. <laughs> He's gone. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have much smart to say about this. You said you, Cameron was going to read me about it. You came to think that we shouldn't use the default should be you don't notice the line breaks when you're hearing it or when you're reading it. Yeah, well, I was thinking about it in terms of like editing film and how poorly yeah. edited you can just be so distracting. And then I thought that's kind of like a poem with really bad line breaks that are constantly like yanking you out of the experience of the right. poem. And I've been working on this poem for like a year that I just cannot get the, the lines to sit right. Hmm. And starting to think about the, the make kind of comparison, I was like, okay, well maybe it's just a matter of making them as unnoticeable as possible because everything else I try to do is just not working. And it just, it feels like distracting and janky and annoying. So yeah. I there's a line uh, Alec Guinness had, the same autobiography in which he didn't acknowledge Star Wars as a part of his career. Um, he uh, <laughs> <laughs> completely insignificant. Nice. He, he said the, uh, that as he gets older as an actor, he just tries to do less. And I do feel like there's certain yeah. poets whose whose voice has some of that quality as they as they really age that it. Yeah. And like good and like I feel like good mature stand-ups also. There's often like a way in which they're almost not writing like they're almost not telling jokes. They're almost it's just sort of it it's um it is it is so effortless to hear that it's almost confusingly effortless in like considering mm. the composition of it. Uh but it Yeah. Maybe maybe it's partly just a matter of like trusting your hand. Yeah, because I think really what's happening when you get to that stage of being really experienced is that you're just using all the tools. Like stand up, you're using um, timing, like the material itself, you're using spaces, you're using your physicality, all that kind of stuff. Um, whereas if you're a poet, you 
you just have this incredible, I feel like the poets who I really admire, I read their work and I'm like, this is all just years and years of trial and error and honing a gut instinct for what works on the page. Are you, where in your development are you, do you think? Like, where does this fall in your development as a poet? Uh, I'm I'm aware of the problem. I'm at step one. <laughs> yeah, but, like, do you, do you see this as like starting over in a certain way? Yeah, yeah. It feels, this last couple of years has felt like a really big um, exercise in starting over, like every, every aspect of what I'm doing, which is, yeah, pretty uncomfortable, but I'll survive. Yeah, but that, I mean, to me, that's that's a uh, that's a hopeful sign. Like, the, you want to be able to start over. Right? For you don't, sure. Like, you don't want and, to be for like yeah. starting over is scary, but you don't want to be incapable of starting over. No, no, you don't want to get stuck in one mode. Absolutely. No, I'm excited for You're you. You're back, Cameron. Oh, thank you. I am. Sorry. Um, that's okay. Uh, sorry, technology we went off in a shit for a second. Totally different direction, so it's all good. Yeah, Alice, um, her account but, of line break theory, and we just said, well, just assume that Cameron agrees with all of this and sign him off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair assumption, fair assumption. But you hated what I said about um, not wanting line breaks to be noticeable. Yeah, I hated that. I hated that part, yes. I hated... Um, well, I think line breaks should be noticeable. I think, I mean, one of the things I do think Alice Oswald says it's very valuable in this lecture is that she says that some poets work in phrase and the line break is normally, an, you know, is, an, is, an, is a non-enjammed break into silence after the, after the phrase ends. And some poets work by pushing the phrase against the line break and meaning tumbles over and Milton is for his other. One of the greatest examples of that in the language. So I do, and I think I, I am. If 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 I can make any critical statements about myself, which I think should be considering that I'm talking about myself and also how young I am, I think that should be very suspect. But I think if I if I am allowed to do that, I certainly think I'm maybe of the second school, and I love pushing meaning as line breaks. I love what how line breaks can tear apart phrases, and I like gutting meaning like that or complicating phrases or making it more jarring. So I guess I I do I am more attracted to that noticeability. Not in every single line break, but certainly you know I I, I try at least once or twice probably in each in each poem. So that that's why I sort of disagree with you there, Alice. But I also think you some you probably do that as well sometimes. You being Alice. Yes, yeah, sometimes you want that expect. Yeah, well, both of you, but mainly mainly Alice. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you do need that effect, like like with everything. It's like you you can have both. You can have all of it. You can have interruptions and um, drawing attention to it and you can have moments where it fades into the background and it just depends on the effect that you want to go for so I'm just not a great one to fight with because essentially I can see both sides of any the argument so yeah I was I was it's listening to some, some, some like formal recorded uh, moderated debates recently and I just thought like this is sort of entertaining but also I would I would be so bad at this because I like I get the combative part of it but I also don't get being like having to just like scrap for every inch from your fixed position rather than just being able to try to understand things a little bit better yeah right yeah. Sure. yeah like I want to I don't want to I don't want a boxing match I want like a battle royale 
<laughs> There'd be no goal. <laughs> can I read a little bit of this, Alice Oswald, just so we can get to of Please? just how confusing she can be? Oh, man. Yeah. Did you find a transcript? I wrote this or did out. You just write it I just wrote it out because it was there were some quotes that I was just like, what by that? I love it, but I don't understand it at all. She says, um, most free verse poets use line breaks to undermine the grammar tune. Hughes, oh, yeah. as in Ted Hughes, Hughes' grammar is in his melody. Hughes' grammar is his melody. His musical silence also a semantic silence. And that was the moment at which I was like, I'm not at Oxford. I don't know what's going on. I'm so confused. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think I, I think I understand that. I think it's more simpler than, than what since she than that seems. I think what basically that means is like the first part means some poets will push will in jam heavily. What she then goes on to say is that with Hughes, he does not in jam heavily. So when no. a phrase ends, the line ends. The line ends on on a comma or, or a or, or a semicolon or whatever, or not even a comma or a semicolon if he abandons punctuation like he does sometimes in Crow, but Hughes' works doesn't break the phrase across the line. So when the phrase ends, the line ends, and that's all the right. silence that comes between the notes. That's what she means by semantic silence. Okay, I get yeah. it now. <laughs> right, like the line coincides with the phrase. Yeah, here's, here's the passage. I Because uh, I remember that grammar tune thing catching my ear and confusing me as well. Um, here's the passage I wrote down, not because I think it's like wrong or but just because it sort of blew my mind. He said, I have noticed myself if I write for a while in rhyming couplets, then take a break and go for a walk, the world arranges itself into matching pairs. I find myself mm -hmm. looking at symmetrical seeds, trees with their shadows, to and fro bird calls, side by side footprints. If I'm using six, eight sonnet form, the world seems full of interwoven patterns. I'm more driven to observe flowers when writing formal verse. I encounter more surprise, more movement when I'm writing free verse. And I thought like that seemed to me like one of three things. Like it's either, it's either like the idiotic description that like an intro to poetry book for children, like it's like, it's like the idea that somebody who's never written a poem in his life has about how poets think, or it's like, like a four-year-old boy who just watched a Batman movie thinking he's Batman when he walks down the street. Or like, it's just that she's a fucking genius. And like, it, her mind is insane and nothing, none of it makes sense, but she just has this way of thinking and being that's just beyond us. Because I thought like, I, mm. that sounds fine to me. Like, I can't dispute anything she's saying. It just, I don't, I don't know what to say in response to it. Like, I don't have anything like that experience and I'm just sort of baffled by it. But this is what, like this, and this is why it was like it's it's such a strange like it, for as a lecture it was such a strange thing. It was, it was almost like it should be a, like a performance piece or like a diary or a like a self portrait. I, I don't know. Totally, yeah. I do. I love her lectures. It's definitely the third one, though. Yeah, no, it's definitely the third one. She's but I think I, I, oh, of course, yeah, I yeah, yeah. agree with that. I agree with that slightly. I do find that sometimes, not to that extent, but I do get I do get traces of that. You perceive the world in a way that parallels the poetic forms you've been in the habit of using yeah yeah sometimes not to the extent mm. she does but I, yeah i do think a little i definitely draw on the things around me and sort of feed the monster of whatever i'm thinking about but yeah the I, this sort of the perception things that's well she also said that she just like arbitrarily said like an epic is a poem made up of lines 
So Paradise Lost is a lyric because it doesn't pause very much. Not okay, but yeah, yeah. And well, wait, is that what a lyric <laughs> is? Also, like, is like it's a lyric the poem that doesn't pause? Like, okay. I mean, again, like I just think like she's yeah. a, she her, may just her... be a genius who's who's verbal like yeah, I don't know. It's something. There's some kind of mismatch going on there. Yeah, I'm I'm meeting up with her quite soon, one to one, and I will I'll try and ask her some of these questions. But yeah, Please I, say I, hi. I will, um, but you know, I don't, I don't, I like her theory of epic, but I don't think I fully understand it yet. I would say, yeah. The like, bit that I got her, from that was, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just to say, like, I would have her, like, like ra rather than, like, give you a private lecture, like, get her to, like, anoint you with charisma and, like, prick her fingers and, and like, rub her, you know, blood on your palms to make you a better poet. Like, that. I mean, I don't know, like, she <laughs> definitely could help you, but it, it'll be through <laughs> the use of magic, not, like... Not critical thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most likely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Alex, yeah, you were saying something uh, had some meaning to it? <laughs> no, I, I think I finally understood, because she said all this stuff about epic being an art of lines and a broken melody through which something beyond the human is expressed. But then at the end she said the epic voice is a voice beyond the poet's own. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, that I can yep. get with. Makes sense to me. Yeah, but sing, yeah, sing up until that point, I was like, "What do you mean?" Yeah, but I, I love her. Out of all the Oxford, out of all the Oxford um, lecturers, I love her. Uh, the second most, obviously, because <laughs> you know who can who can who, who can surpass Jeffrey Hill. But yeah, I'd, I would much prefer go to, going to her sort of strange, weird, poetically expressive but not very technically accurate lectures than I would sort of Simon Armitage's incredibly dull, placid, but technically accurate. Um I imagine it being like I imagine her being like a like a tiny bird like British version of the Andre Gregory character from My Dinner with Andre. Like that's what I would imagine like having like spending time with her would just be like you just like sit down and drink wine and you're just in a you're in a, like a three hour trance while she just tells some fucking insane story about being buried alive and then having a like having a uh, like a breakthrough and then understanding the Tao. Um, you just leave thinking, yeah, like, like sitting on the subway being like, that was the most magical experience of my life and I can't paraphrase any of it. I've gone to the two of her poetry where every time she talks about dreams she's had and then makes us tell everyone each other about dreams we've had. Last dream she had, I remember, she said she dreamt that the head of Orpheus rose from a river and commanded her to write. I, you know, she is, she lives within sort of the poetic tradition completely, I think. Yeah, good. good. Yeah, good. She. I just okay. Can you imagine like Brian? Brian at those workshops. I you oh know I'm doing Brian sound in the chat that he hates people telling, telling like their dreams. I it's just I, the the image now just pops into my head. It's so funny. Yeah, now I'm just like trying to <laughs> trying to find ways to exaggerate it to make it worse for him. Like people, people like sharing <laughs> like mixed nuts in a bowl and not washing their hands and like. <laughs> like like people taking their socks and shoes off and putting their bare feet on the furniture around it yeah like there's yeah there's definitely definitely some ways that could be cameron there was one little bit that i wrote out because it sounded so much like you <laughs> and i want to know okay i want to know if i kind of got, got this right okay okay yeah yeah she says poetry is a threefold practice including the lyric the dramatic and the epic if you miss this you're left with only small personal sealed up poetry about what has been rather than what might be. 
particularly that last bit, I was like, that's that's what you're concerned with. You you're you want to move away from just the personal what has been and think about what might be. Is that fair? That is I, partly fair. I think I'm not I'm not like opposed to like personal autobiographical dis- description. I'm opposed to the language in one in which one couches that couches that autobiographical description. And I guess also I am kind of sick of the autobiographical. So I I think yeah I think that's fair enough. And that's okay. Fair. I mean okay. I'm a hypocrite. I most of my poems are autobiographical to an, to an extent. Although mm. I try and create personas, but you know I I am I. I'm I'm sick of it, but I'm sick more of the language it, it's couched in. I think mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. where, like again, she reminded me of the Mary Gaskell essay, and then it was like clearly this is a smart person who has a grasp of like these fundamentals, but then the way she talks about them doesn't actually make sense. She says like we have the epic, the lyric, and the dramatic, which are these sort of three major poetic traditions, which is all true. But then she says if you if you forget one or two of them, then you're left with just this. And she describes this like like larval like sub lyric sort of nubbin of a poem and you think like well no like part of those (laughs) traditions is that like you had dramatic poems which are called plays and you had epic poems which are called epics and you had lyric poems which are called lyrics and they didn't all that like the ones that did all of those at the same time were epics like the epic combined the dramatic with the lyric and the narrative that's the nature of the forms like if you it doesn't it's not like you can you lose them if you don't use them all simultaneously like having a lyric means that you're not also doing a dramatic poem at that moment. It just seems like she, like she's got the idea in there. She just doesn't have, it's just like clear thinking is not her gift. She's just got a gift for being like a magus or something, which is great, which is all I would want her to be. Oh man. Um, I should go, but before I do, and you could use this or not, Matthew, but um, I was just, I, I'm thinking the thing that you said before when we we're talking about Audrey Lord, that's really like, gonna sit with me I think is when you said um we this is what we've been doing we've been sparring um in this room and like when I was listening to that neo-georgian hellscape episode and often when I'm looking at the substack which I try not to spend too too much time looking at um (laughs) just because like not, well, not for the like reason an ideal that, like, lounge for you to hang out in. Well, he's just have a drink. With. <laughs> here's the thing, it's right? It's like, bar on the scene. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not. It's not any of that. It's just like this. This stance is like sparring kind of way of being with other poets is like so uncomfortable to me. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it's like a personal thing or. Or what it is, but but I just wonder how you guys think about it because I was listening to that episode and I was thinking like, but but these are real people, and who will will probably hear this at some point and like, again, just that thing that I asked you the first time I met you, Matthew. Like, aren't you guys worried? Like, do do you think people's feelings will get hurt? So so before Joanna and I had any kids, before we were even married, our friends Molly and Pete had a little baby named Henry, and then. When Henry was like two or three, we babysat for him a couple times while his parents could go out. And I, you know, I did not really have experience with kids then, except from like tutoring, you know, significantly older kids. Um, but like we went to, over there for the first time, and Joanna, you know, said, "Oh, he's so sweet. He's a little doll. He's a little blonde doll baby." And and he sort of stood there and you know across the room after his parents left, staring at us. 
And I didn't think about it. I just got down on all fours and I growled at him and he screamed and ran away and laughed. And then he came back in and like, was like instantly like, oh good, we're playing now. Like we're doing this. And I, I think like that mm -hmm. Joanna did was like, didn't know where that came from and didn't understand it at all. But to me, it's very intuitive. It's like, no, this is how we play. Like, this is how we mm -hmm. have it. Like my dog's the same fucking way. Like she's like, can we play and do the thing where we fight? You know, I, I think at mm -hmm. least part at least part of it is that. I don't know. Cameron, do you have other thoughts? I mean, I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, it, it's still true. Um, especially about the dog. My, yeah, my dog is playing with me. Um, I don't care if I hurt people's feelings. Maybe I would if if I was close friends with them, but I also think I was close friends with them. I believe trust them enough to hurt their feelings anyway, in regards to like I think that I think their poetry is not aesthetically rising to what it could be. I, th these are like most of the people we're talking about are established writers who get well praised in their own small new formalist circles. I, I, on the other, like, I don't, I don't see that my comments, if they have any critical weight or any critical insight, really deserve not to be said because it might upset them when they have had their own sort of movement their own um uh, you know their own their own praise directed amongst each other i i don't i don't see that i i i i hope i will not be worried about upsetting people unless that upset is from like i mean upsetting people by stating an aesthetic opinion i hope you know if i upset people because i state something horrible or, or human or stupid then completely fair i hope i don't do that but i don't i don't i love this podcast because i i, I it is so rad, radically un, un, unafraid of being of being honest and i i want i think we need honesty more than ever in this sort of late capitalist hellscape <laughs> late capitalist alice convinced unconvinced thoughts well, what, uh, what? yeah no it, it sounds like i worry too much I, I worry obsessively about hurting the feelings of uh, people I know. I, uh -huh. part, I mean, partly I think like like with my friends, I'm used to playing rhetorically rough to a certain degree. And, and like giving grief is partly an expression of fondness, you know, like being ostentatiously rude to someone you're actually very close to is a way of showing affection. Uh, but I do mm -hmm. worry very much about hurting the feelings of people I know. If you are very well established and I don't know you, I don't think it's that I don't care about your feelings. It's more like, I don't think it makes sense to have your feelings be hurt. If somebody like makes fun of your, of your work or your speech or your writing, like it's I, again, like, I don't, I, I don't think, I, I mean, I may, I'm sure I'm not pure on this, but like, I try not to go after people's like persons really. I usually go after things mm. they say and mm. write and, and the same, like, and if you make fun of something I said or wrote, and you don't know me and i and you consider me to be more established than you in some respect i don't think i don't think i would have my feelings hurt by that i, mean, I don't think i have I mean, like i don't know eleanor didn't pull punches and i thought it was like hilarious but mm -hmm. i also know i know and i know there's like there's a like more complexity there for you know um and it's easier for me because i have more distance but yeah but with people i know i worry uh, uh frantically about it all the time probably more so even than, than yeah before. my Daughters who should have been in bed a very long time ago want to say hi to y'all. Speaking of that. Hello. Okay, say hi. Hi. You gotta, They're hold, big. Yeah, hold oh. on to them. Hold on to them. Alice, are you going to have to run? What's your story? Uh, I probably should, yeah. So okay. I'll see you. Oh.
I'm sorry. Um, yeah, our, uh, my I fucked up our schedule. Screwed up, screwed up our schedule. No. Um, but it's, it is good to talk to you again. And I'm looking forward to talking to you soon. And uh, you're you're really the best. I don't. And I you're the best too. Yeah, I'm sorry for being a jerk about Audrey Lord. <laughs> it's um, okay. It's totally yeah. fine. It's really it's good to talk to you both. Likewise. I yeah, will definitely. see you soon. That was this week's show. You can do, if you don't know Alice's podcast, Poetry Says, go check it out. If you want to yell at Cameron personally, then he has contact information in the show notes. Uh, as does Brian, if you feel like yelling about Brian, even though he wasn't on this episode. And uh, if you feel like yelling at me, then write to sleerickets at gmail.com. Your thoughts are always welcome. Boy. It was intense. It was intense, right? But I think, I think good. Yeah. I I've always been a fan of like heated conversations. <laughs> it's one of the things. It's one of the traits that alienated so many of my ex girlfriends. Uh, I just always found them sort of invigorating and and um, and helpful. I guess how I've learned a lot of things over the years. I hope you thought. I, well. I hope you found it worthwhile to please do let me know uh, one way or the other. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.